Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode two of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In episode one, I focused primarily on an ancient secret of the Sahara Desert. But today, to finish up chapter one, I'm going to move the location to Anatolia and tell you another story that is thousands of years old. I'll return back to connections to the Sahara later on in this book, but in this part, I wanted to talk about a very specific event which this entire episode revolves around. And without giving it away, I wanted to really delve into what the two different cultures who participated in this event were really like because there was just a lot of odds and ends information that I felt like if I didn't include it here, I wouldn't end up talking about it again. And I haven't heard anywhere else that put all of these pieces of information together. The two cultures that I focus on in this part are the ancient kingdom of Lydia, which is in what is now modern-day Turkey, and the ancient empire of Media, which took over a large part of the Middle East. And I really take the time to paint the picture of what was going on at this time that led to the event that is going to be my focus for this episode. I want to lead off, though, by saying that there might be errors with the exact specificity of dates and times that I used, but I did my best to really try and get them as accurate as possible. But if anyone catches an error, please feel free to shoot me an email. I also share a really fun myth, but I don't share the whole thing because it was too long. It's an old Persian myth called the Perry Wife, and I share a link to it in my resources, which you can find in my episode description if you wanted to read it for yourself. And as for the actual focus of this episode, it takes place on May 28th. 585 BCE, at a very specific moment in time, centered around a specific battle between these two cultures, and despite it being deep in the past and only lasting for about 10 or 15 minutes, there just was so much happening around it that I wanted to take the time to truly bring this moment to life and how it must have felt for these people thousands of years ago. Without further ado, please remember you can always follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world for new updates, and you can always reach out to me at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Please enjoy Episode 2 of Ultima Thule 
Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 1, Part 4, Ancient Anatolians When discoveries reveal that a landscape the size of a continent has a history and a people that have been nearly entirely lost and forgotten, it is a stark reminder of how much of our history that we just don't know and will likely never know. Human history has the same problem as desert towns that try to ward off the waves of impinging dunes. We can follow written history only so far before it becomes obscured by the dunes of time. Reach your hand into the sands and you may come up with fragments like we did at Gobero. A glimpse of a burial, some jewelry, what they ate, but no story to accompany them. It is only written history that brings the past out of the era of black and white and into colorful detail. And as we slip back into time, at first hundreds and then thousands of years, the written histories become rarer and more difficult to interpret. Even when we have the text about an event, the culture of the time, motivations of involved parties, and the biases of the writer further obscure the true events of the past. The written histories are what's left of our collective past, our abandoned streets and homes, leaving the dunes of time to partially shroud their stories. Our own cognitive biases often fill in the gaps with supernatural elements, turning what remains of these histories into myths, legends, and miracles. They're the stories that are found in our religious texts and relayed to us in the earliest forms of written history, dating back to before the Common Era, or BCE. One such story has been passed down to us from classical antiquity about two warring kingdoms, Lydia and Media, which took place in the 6th century BCE north of the Mediterranean Sea in the area known as Anatolia. Lydia was the older of the two kingdoms, having existed since 1200 BCE, making it 600 years old by the time the war started. For comparison, Egypt had been well-established for over 2,000 years by this point, the humid Saharans long forgotten, their bones and art waiting to be found deep in the desert over 2,500 years into the future. 
located in what is today the country of Turkey, Lydia sat at one of those global choke points that no weak kingdom could exist by accident, rivaling the empires of Babylonia in the east and Egypt in the south. Lydia, having been around since the dawn of written history, has its legacy blended with fact and myth. The Lydians overtook the city of Troy after the legendary Trojan War that had been enshrined in the Odyssey. Later, they conquered the kingdom of Phrygia in their expansion which was home to powerful kings such as Gordius of the Gordian Knot, Migden, famous for warring with the Amazons, and, of course, there was Midas, whose powerful expansion of Phrygia was so great that the myth of how everything he touched turned to gold immortalized him. Perhaps the tragedy of excessive wealth imprinted itself on the Greek psyche because Midas was the last independent king of Phrygia before it was overtaken by the neighboring Lydians. Less remembered about Midas is how he voted for the satyr Marcius in a musical competition against Apollo. After Marcius lost, Apollo punished Midas by forcing him to have the ears of an ass, which he allegedly hid under the iconic tall hats typically worn by the Phrygians. What really made Midas fall from his position of wealth and power to forever after be remembered as an ass is now one of those lost pieces of history. But what we do know is that the Lydians deftly moved in to subject Phrygia to their rule directly after his reign. Apollo typically symbolized civilization and all of its perks, while satyrs often symbolized more transient and tribal groups. Could Lydia have been the cosmopolitan metropolis associated with Apollo and Marcius a weak competitor whom Midas allied himself with? The Lydians are known to be the first kingdom to invent coins in the West, no doubt something Apollo would have utilized in any city worthy of his blessing. As a wealthy nation... Lydia had the ability to pay for mercenaries when their own soldiers did not suffice. Lydia is also mentioned in the adventures of Heracles or Hercules, where he is said to have been a slave to Omphali and provided her with children that founded the city of Sardis, which would then go on to become the capital of Lydia for centuries. But it was Lydia's eastern neighbor, the Medes, that were now the new and indomitable force in the 6th century BCE. Based out of the region that is now in modern-day Iran, their worshipping rituals laid the foundation for Zoroastrianism, 
a religion that would come to dominate the Middle East for the next several centuries and continue on, albeit in a much diminished form, to the modern day. The word magician derives from their priestly class of magi, often considered wise men of the East, and mentioned as visiting Jesus at his birth. The beliefs of the Medes, mysterious and foreign to the Lydians as well as the Greeks, would come to influence nearly all subsequent Western perspectives of Eastern civilizations. So potent was the impression of the Medes left upon the West. The origin of Media in Greek mythology is often related to the princess Medea, whose ancestry prominently included Helios, the sun god. She's most renowned for her appearance in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, when Jason heads to the Far East to claim the coveted Golden Fleece. Given a series of nearly impossible tasks from the Eastern King who is holding the Fleece, Jason is able to succeed at every one, but only because he was receiving secret help from Medea. Medea was often depicted as a cunning sorceress with secret healing powers and exuded seduction. She had the ability to hypnotize, concoct secret potions, and was a ruthless killer. She was also portrayed as a priestess of Hecate, a mysterious titaness who preceded the gods, known for her powers in magic and witchcraft. Once Medea helped Jason win the Golden Fleece, she returned to Corinth with Jason, where they married, only to be cast aside later for another wife whom Medea goes on to poison while also killing her own children that she had with Jason in an astonishing act of vengeance. Afterwards, she is said to have fled to marry Aegis, the founder of Athens, and had a son who would later go on to found the Median Empire. But what actually happened when the Western Greeks clashed with their Eastern neighbors before the rise of the Median Empire might actually be cryptically written in this salacious myth. But once again, like all of early written history, we will likely never know. The prior ruler of these eastern lands before the Medes was the dreaded Neo-Assyrian Empire, which by all accounts, including their own, was a ruthless power that laid waste to all that defied them for nearly 500 years, reaching a peak in the 7th century BCE. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was the largest empire the world had known up until that time. 
Over the course of hundreds of years, the Assyrians learned the efficiency of bureaucracy, levying caustic tributes over the subjects of their empire. The Lydians to the west, the Babylonians to the south, the Egyptians to the southwest, and the Medes to the east were just a few of those forced under the yoke of the merciless Assyrians. And as the Neo-Assyrian Empire reached its height, those within the empire were so oppressed that it led to a series of civil wars that the neighboring kingdoms watched with pleasure and one by one each stopped paying their tribute to the brutal empire. At this time, Media was relatively unknown compared to places like Babylonia, Lydia, and Egypt. But during the Neo-Assyrian civil wars, Media's king had died fighting the Assyrians. The Assyrians then allied themselves with a tribe from the north known as the Scythians, who were sent to conquer and subdue the Median backwater, while the Assyrians focused on other, more powerful transgressors. Spanning across the southern steppe of Asia, but north of the more agrarian kingdoms of Media, Assyria, and Lydia, the Scythians were an unrivaled horse people who inspired fear wherever they went across the ancient world. And just a quick note, by horse people, I mean people who lived primarily on horseback and traveled more nomadically than the more sedentary kingdoms in the south. The Scythians and other horse people of the steppe are said to have been the model for the Greek myth of the centaur. Raucous, debauched, and deadly, like horseback land pirates of antiquity. The Scythian model of nomadic steppe living while raiding the sedentary kingdoms to the south would continue on for the next 2,000 years and would become some of the most infamous raiders in history. Descendant cultures of the Scythians include the Huns and the Mongols led by the likes of Attila and Genghis Khan. The Scythians were able to keep Media subjected for decades as the son of Media's dead king, Cyaxares, grew into a man and organized a rebellion against the Scythians. Cyaxares, which I've also heard pronounced Cyaxares, was successful in this endeavor slaughtering his Scythian overlords and driving the remainder out of their kingdom to hunt and raid elsewhere. And then he went on to crown himself king of Media in 625 BCE. But Cyaxares' reign of vengeance had only just begun. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was still locked up in civil war, and Cyaxares planned to do nothing less than overthrow the centuries-old empire that killed his father. A truly epic endeavor. 
What's more is that Cyaxares won, and he accomplished this through several methods. First, Cyaxares organized his troops with his signature method of grouping different units together. Spearmen with other spearmen, archers with other archers, and horsemen with other horsemen. Next, he married off his daughter to the son of the neighboring Babylonian king, creating an alliance with one of the most powerful, aggrieved subjects of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They didn't know it at the time, but the Babylonian king's son would go on to become the most powerful king the Babylonians would ever have, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Nebuchadnezzar would go on to build his wife one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens at Babylon, to help her cope with missing her lush homeland of Media. But perhaps the most surprising move by Cyaxares was that, despite the fresh wounds between them, he also allied himself with the Scythians, who likely saw the changing power dynamic and the fruitful plunder of the Neo-Assyrian Empire as ripe for the taking. So, as the Medes, Babylonians, Scythians, and some other allies teamed up and moved against the empire, the Assyrians used their remaining vassals to fight back against the rebels. In the south, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrian-allied Egyptians, while King Cyaxares and the Medes primarily moved in and overtook the old capital of Assyria, Asher, a nearly 1,500-year-old religious center. Cyaxares then eyed up the new capital of Neo-Assyria, Nineveh, and proceeded to lay siege to the impenetrable heart of their overlord. There is a painting done by John Martin in 1829 called The Fall of Nineveh, which I share in my book, that has a dramatic depiction of this event. Cyaxares' siege of Nineveh lasted for several months before the Medes were able to break their way into the walled city. Cyaxares and his troops sacked the city, burned it to the ground, and killed their king. In the wake of the Battle of Nineveh, Cyaxares adopted the empire as his own, lifting the Medes from a small, far eastern subject kingdom into one of the greatest of all time. Media now had an empire outsizing more ancient competitors like Babylonia, Lydia, Egypt, or even the now-defunct Neo-Assyrian Empire. To the Lydians, the Medes were an upstart venture that, in less than a century, had now consolidated an empire as far east as modern Pakistan, as far south as the Persian Gulf, as far north as modern Uzbekistan, and as far west as the Black Sea, where the kingdom pressed firm against the eastern borders of the old kingdom of Lydia. 
And for those of you who have trouble visualizing this in your mind, in my book, I have multiple maps that portray these kingdoms because I know it can get a little confusing. It was here on Lydia's eastern border where tensions between the two superpowers began to rise. The extent of the Median Empire far outsized Lydia's own by nearly tenfold by the time the war broke out between them. But Lydia would prove to be no pushover. Herodotus, known in Western culture as the father of history, is a Greek historian with some of the earliest written histories on record and ends up being the primary source for this war, despite having lived over a century after its occurrence. He relays that the war between the Medes and the Lydians began because of a, quote, horde, unquote, of Scythian hunters who had entered the vast Median kingdom and found favor under King Cyaxares who allowed them to stay within his borders. Herodotus relays that these Scythian hunters found themselves in Media and gained favor with Cyaxares by offering protection and bringing him tribute from their Scythian hunts. Knowing their capabilities, having personally once been subjected to their rule and having fought alongside them in war, Cyaxares was likely happy to have them around when the Scythians showed their usefulness through tribute and intimidation of his enemies. He used them for protection and sent some, quote, boys to learn their speech and the art of shooting the bow, end quote, in an effort to build a stronger relationship with these Scythians. These relations between Cyaxares and the Scythians remained positive until one day when the Scythians returned from a chase empty-handed and had nothing to present the Median king. Cyaxares was insulted by this lack of tribute and, now being in the dominant position, turned the insult back onto the Scythians. Exactly how Cyaxares did this is not known, but it seems clear that the Scythians got the message. While Cyaxares was the sole ruler of the largest imperial empire in the history of the world up to that point, he had just insulted the centaurs of the ancient world a people whose terrors he once lived under and was now provoking. But, surprisingly, the Scythians at first acquiesced and attempted to make up for their lack of tribute by procuring a different sort of gain for Cyaxares, and immediately went to preparing his meal. Without knowing the full details of this atonement, Cyaxares was initially pleased by their efforts to make amends for their lack of tribute. What Cyaxares didn't know was that the Scythians took one of the boys that he had sent to learn from them and killed him. They then, quote, 
dressed his flesh as they had wont to dress the wild animals, end quote, and served it to Syaxares and his guests, and they even likely stood by as the most powerful man in the known world and his powerful Median guests unknowingly consumed the human flesh of a Median boy. Herodotus wrote about this incident almost 200 years after it occurred, and he does have a reputation for embellishment, so it's natural to doubt whether this salacious event actually happened. But the unknowing consumption of human flesh is a surprisingly common macabre trope of antiquity. In Greek mythology, the Lydian king Tantalus was punished for feeding the gods his own son, and it has been written that Syaxares' son, Astyages, is said to have fed one of his own general's sons to his father, which allegedly led to the fall of the Median Empire to Persia. One wonders whether Astyages got the idea from what the Scythians did to his own father all those years before. There is even another lesser-known Tantalus in Greek mythology that was killed by his uncle and fed to his father. But by the time written history started coming into full focus, cannibalism and human sacrifice became a taboo of the highest order that is one of the dividing lines between the old world of prehistory and the new. At the dawn of written history, where truth ends and myth begins, is a difficult line to draw. But however King Syaxares found out about this cannibalistic treachery perpetrated by the Scythians is just another one of those unknown factors. But the Scythians already had their escape plan all set. To the far west lay the old kingdom of Lydia, who was highly distrustful of their expanding Median neighbors, a fact that the Scythians were well aware of and ready to exploit. A close modern-day comparison could be someone defecting to the United States at the height of the Cold War after insulting the highest levels of authority in the Soviet Union. With the capability to outpace anyone on horseback, the Scythian horde wended their way to Lydia and very soon found themselves at the service of the Lydian king, Eliates. King Eliates was also strong, having expanded his own kingdom at the same time Syaxares expanded the Median kingdom. So when Syaxares demanded the return of the Scythians for justice on what they had done to him, King Aliates could not easily say yes without appearing weak, like Americans suddenly caving to Soviet demands. The Scythians were not only useful to Aliates, but submitting to Syaxares would portray submission to his giant neighbor, 
even if he respected Syaxares' reason for wanting them returned. Ultimately, the issue that sparked the war might have little to do with Scythian trickery and more to do with Syaxares looking for a pretext to demand obedience from Aliates to expand his empire. Cannibalism or no, Aliates made it clear that his rule was the final say in Lydia, not Syaxares and the Scythians were not going to be turned over to him. Thus began the Lydo-Median War. The war likely began around the year 591 BCE. Aliates proved to be a worthy adversary for the great Syaxares as the two empires continued to war for five full years after the Scythian disagreement. While the Scythians may have precipitated the war, the fighting between Lydia and Media led to many more grievances and disputes that a resolution between the Titan kingdoms seemed nearly impossible. The protracted fighting was so intense that Herodotus makes note that while both the Lydians and the Medians claimed multiple victories, neither side was closer to winning the war. Herodotus states, quote, Afterwards, on the refusal of Aliates to give up his suppliants when Syaxares sent to demand them of him, war broke out between the Lydians and the Medes, and continued for five years, with various success. In the course of it, the Medes gained many victories over the Lydians, and the Lydians also gained many victories over the Medes. End quote. But it was the Battle of Halys, May 28th, 585 BCE, that would become the most memorable battle of the Lydo-Median War. The vague speculations that so much of this ancient history is shrouded in suddenly become uncharacteristically precise on that fateful Wednesday afternoon. When the Lydians and the Medes lined up against each other that day, it must have been a clear sky. The battlefield was an Anatolian grassland with a river, the Halys, somewhere nearby. And as the ancient warriors readied for battle on that sunny day, there was no reason to expect that the protracted Lydo-Median War would be over by the day's end as it languished into its sixth year. Even to this day, nobody knows exactly how these ancient kingdoms fought. These were men of a bygone era that spanned nearly 12,000 years of prehistory, five times as long as compared to the span between now and the time of Herodotus. 
Their all-day battles were a litany of brutal and traumatic events, including spears being stuffed through body after body, dust and mud being torn up by hundreds or thousands of horses and humans, arrows raining from the sky, and gored bodies wailing, moaning, and writhing in piles below their feet. Cyaxares likely used his signature revolutionary military style that had won him his empire from the Neo-Assyrians by lining up his men by fighting unit. But Aliates and the Lydians had learned from the Median tactics by the time of the Battle of Halys and had adopted, or adapted, enough to hold the Medes at bay, just as he had for the previous six years. Battle in ancient times would be a frightening, all-day massacre, but these ancient soldiers were hardened. The Battle of Halys was little different from the countless others they had fought before this day. As far back as any of these empires could remember, this was how differences had to be settled between them. The Battle of Halys surely started out just like any other. The clash of weapons and the gutting of humans and horses lasted all morning and into the early afternoon. Without knowing the precise location of the battlefield, it's difficult to determine the exact time, but by about four o'clock, there was likely still no indication of which side was going to win. But on that Wednesday, May 28th, 585 BCE, the cloudless sky started to darken above the battlefield. The sun was not yet setting, there was still plenty of daylight left to fight over the ever-growing number of corpses. Imperceptibly at first, the fields and trees surrounding the battle site started to slowly lose their luster in the sunlight, as if an overcast was accumulating overhead, despite no clouds. And then, the arrows stopped firing, the riders steadied their steeds, and the spears stood still as, one by one, everyone shielded their eyes as they looked toward the darkening sky enveloping the killing field. It must have been an astonishing sight after an all-day battle of a long and protracted war that could bring both sides to a complete standstill, their heads tilted up towards the heavens. But there it was. The sun had turned black in the middle of the day, with just the thinnest crown of gold lining its edges. Nobody else would die that day. At around 4.22 p.m. on a late May evening in Anatolia, nearly 2,600 years ago, a battle ended when the sun went dark, and for about six minutes and four seconds, 
quote, turned day into night, end quote. Not only did the battle end, but it put an immediate stop to the entire gridlocked and bloody six-year-long Lido-Median War. This Battle of Hallis featured an eclipse that ended an entire war in a way that no mortal could possibly do, and it would forever after be remembered instead as the Battle of the Eclipse. What those soldiers must have thought when they saw the sun nearly blot out must have been sublime. Superstition surrounding eclipses was rife in the ancient world, and so this would have taken on a supernatural or divine meaning to many. The ancient Chinese believed that an eclipse was a dragon trying to eat the sun, while the Egyptians thought it was a serpent. Ancient Hindus thought it was a disembodied demon head that chased the sun and the moon. In other cultures, bears, wolves, vampires, and werewolves were thought to be the causes. Superstitious beliefs still persist to this day surrounding eclipses. Bathing rituals and setting out crystals or water during an eclipse are believed to give a person or their items additional power. Others believe that pregnant women are in danger during an eclipse. According to Ed Krupp, director of the Griffith Observatory in California, quote, if you do a worldwide survey of eclipse lore, the theme that constantly appears with few exceptions is it's always a disruption of the established order. People depend on the sun's movement. It's regular, dependable. You can't tamper with it. And then, all of a sudden, Shakespearean tragedy arrives and time is out of joint. The sun and the moon do something that they shouldn't be doing. End quote. Very little survives as to what the beliefs of the Medes were regarding eclipses. One possibility is that they shared similar ideas as their weaker neighbors, the Persians. The Persians subjugated by the Medes at the time of the Battle of the Eclipse, were watching the Medes closely, and it would not be long before they would strike at the heart of Media in exactly the same way the Medes destroyed the Assyrians. Due to their proximity and connected history, many beliefs of the Persians became intertwined with the Medes as the newest successor of the empire. Ancient Persians believed that eclipses were caused by a mythological creature known as the Peri. Peris share a lot of similarities with the westernized fairies, and even their names, Peri and Fairy, are so tantalizingly close that it would seem that there should be some sort of etymological connection. 
if that were the case, then the westernized fairy must have derived its origin from the eastern peri because it's so much older, spanning back to the time even before Syaxares. Peris, like fairies, were typically female, though not always, had wings, fed on vapors, were mischievous in nature, and were typically beautiful. But they also had some differences as well. They were typically not as small as fairies, and they lived in the northern realms on a mythological mountain known as Calf. Peris dwelled in kingdoms on this mountain with other mythological creatures. The most notorious were the grotesque Deves, whom the Peris were in constant battle with, and sometimes called on mortals for assistance in their wars with the Deves. One such myth that survives about Peris is called the Periwife, and it details the clever trickery of the mythological creature. A merchant who spied four bathing peris decided to play a trick on them and hid their garments as they were too busy playing in the water to see. These garments must also have given them some of their powers, including their ability to fly, for when the peris realized their clothes were gone, they became worried and upset. Upon finding the Randy merchant, the Perrys realized that they were at his mercy and begged him for their clothes back. He agreed, on the condition that one of the Perrys marry him. And despite them being formed from fire and the mortal being formed of clay and water, they were forced to relent and he chose the youngest and the prettiest of the group for his wife. Peris were so stunningly beautiful that they were often compared to the nymphs in Greek mythology, and they aged much more slowly and lived for far longer than humans. He returned the clothing to the other three, who bid their sister farewell, and left for their magical kingdom, while the fourth was forced to live the life of a mortal. In time, the Perry grew to become affectionate to the merchant, even with him continuing to hide her clothing from her. He knew that, despite her adjustment and attention, that she would leave him if she ever had her clothes returned. They settled into a life together and had children, and she even became close with the friends and family of the merchant. But when the merchant realized that in order to continue to take care of his family, that he needed to go on a long voyage, he put the care of his periwife in the charge of an old woman that he trusted, and told her the truth about his wife and the secret location of her garments. While the merchant was gone one day, the old woman happened to see the peri finish with a bath 
and could not help but comment on her beauty, as she had never seen the likeness of it elsewhere. The Perry replied, quote, Ah, nurse, though you think my present charms great, yet had you seen me in my native raiment, you would have witnessed what beauty and grace the divine creator has bestowed upon Perry's. For know that we are among the most finished portraits on the tablets of existence. If then thou desirest to behold the skill of the divine artist and admire the wonders of creation, bring the robes which my husband has kept concealed, that I may wear them for an instant and show thee my native beauty, the like of which no human eye but my lord's hath gazed upon. End quote. With this, the old woman fetched her raiment, and the peri donned it, and, quote, like a bird escaped from the cage, end quote, she flew off. When the merchant returned home to learn what happened, he became what they called peri-stricken, a term meaning possessed or insane, and, quote, a recluse in the cell of madness, end quote. This surviving story goes on to show that Perrys, like westernized leprechauns, come with a sort of cursed charm. It was also said that these capricious and cunning creatures had the ability to darken the sun, for the fun of it, and so may have been on the mind of the Median soldiers on that fateful day in 585, BCE. The Lydians, on the other hand, had much more ominous myths regarding eclipses, which they shared with the Greeks, one of which relates back to Medea, the mythological woman associated with the very enemy the Lydians were fighting on that battlefield. Eclipses were thought to be the work of sorcery, and Medea was said to have caused both solar and lunar eclipses, casting dark spells with chilly omens. Whether it was the work of Peris or Eastern sorcery, the kings Aliates and Syaxares agreed to come to terms and end the war. The eclipse of May 28, 585 BCE was seen by both kings as an omen of the sort that they better not test further, which led to an immediate peace agreement between Lydia and Media. Aliates agreed to have his daughter marry Syaxares' son, and the two bound themselves to the agreement by pricking themselves and mixing their own blood with the others. The subsequent wedding of King Aliette's daughter and Syaxares's son, Astyages, to solidify the new peace must have been an especially extravagant event for the time. It's possible that Syaxares' son might have been king of Media by the time the actual wedding had taken place, as 585 is the year most associated with Syaxares' death. 
and may have given Astyages an excuse to pause the war anyway. Astyages was to be another powerful king of the Median Empire, who would rival his father in prestige, the same son who would go on to allegedly feed his general his own son to eat. The marriage pact sealed the peace between the two kingdoms, agreeing on the Halys River as their border, and this agreement built from the fear of this astronomical event, seemed to have worked as there were no significant conflicts between them afterwards. The eclipse of 585 BCE is notable for two reasons today. The first is it is the only known eclipse to have ended a war, and secondly, it is considered the earliest definitive date of an event known to historians. But is this actually true? Important details become contradictory or confusing when historians try to prove that the Battle of the Eclipse in 585 BCE is the earliest known date in recorded history or that the historic battle even happened that year. The first point of confusion is Herodotus's language itself. Scholars formulate whole theories on what was actually meant in the brief text regarding the entire war between the Lydians and the Medes. One translation by George Rawlinson speaks about the war as follows, quote, Afterwards, on the refusal of Aliates to give up his suppliants when Syaxares sent to demand them of him, war broke out between the Lydians and the Medes, and continued for five years with various success. In the course of it, the Medes gained many victories over the Lydians, and the Lydians also gained many victories over the Medes. Among their other battles, there was one night engagement. As, however, the balance had not inclined in favor of either nation, another combat took place in the sixth year, in the course of which, just as the battle was growing warm, day was on a sudden changed into night. The Medes and the Lydians, when they observed the change, ceased fighting and were alike anxious to have terms of peace agreed upon. End quote. So, in this Rawlinson translation, there seems to be two battles worth noting. The first is a night engagement, and the second is a battle where day was on a sudden changed into night. There are multiple interpretations that go on to make an even clearer distinction between this alleged night battle and this second battle, which consisted of the eclipse. Yet, translated slightly differently, as in the following translation from Henry Carey, the meaning of this can shift. Quote, After this, for Aliates refused to deliver up the Scythians to Syaxares when he demanded them, war lasted between the Lydians and the Medes for five years. 
During this period, the Medes often defeated the Lydians, and often the Lydians defeated the Medes. And during this time, they had a kind of nocturnal engagement. In the sixth year, when they were carrying on the war with nearly equal success, on occasion of an engagement, it happened in the heat of battle, day was suddenly turned into night. The Lydians and Medes, seeing night succeeding in the place of day, desisted from fighting, and both showed a great anxiety to make peace. End quote. So, in this carry interpretation, there was a kind of nocturnal engagement that no further information is provided on. With the carry translation, it seems far more likely that the nocturnal engagement was a setup for the eclipse event where day was suddenly turned into night, rather than a separate, isolated event. Indeed, the phrasing indicates that it wasn't a straightforward nocturnal event, otherwise the words a kind of wouldn't be necessary. These slight language shifts can throw off interpretations completely and leave open room for a variety of meanings. Not only are historians hanging on to Herodotus's every word, but they are trying to interpret it millennia after it was written. The reason for such debate goes even deeper than just difficulty of translating some of the oldest written accounts of history into modern language and a modern mind. Herodotus himself may have been confused about some of the language he was reading from as some of the sources he used was written over a century before he was even born, giving further distance between the events and Herodotus. Then there is the fact that Herodotus goes to great lengths to measure the amount of years that each Median ruler was on the throne, and by his account, Syaxares died 10 years prior to the Battle of the Eclipse in 585 BCE. Could Herodotus have gotten the years wrong since what constituted a year was much more subjective than it is today? Could it be that the Battle of the Eclipse didn't occur during the year 585 BCE at all? Astronomers have calculated the paths of other eclipses as well, including one in 610 BCE, 603 BCE, and 557 BCE, just to name a few. But none of these line up as nicely as the 585 BCE event, which passes tantalizingly close over the Hallis. So, Like a grainy video, the details of this event could be interpreted in a variety of ways, with no way to definitively say which is right. This is the illusion of time. Shift your gaze slightly, pull back a little, 
and the details get lost and blended with myths and legends to fill in the forgotten parts, like a mirage through bleary eyes. What at first seems abundantly clear may never have actually been there at all. Without direct evidence, there will always be a chance that no Battle of the Eclipse occurred at all. But historians tend to agree that the Battle of the Eclipse is a real event that directly led to the ending of the Lido-Median War, and that it occurred in the year 585 BCE. The Battle of the Eclipse also proves that when the cosmos speak, we listen. There is a primal reaction that something like an eclipse can provoke in us. The fact that the moon, which just happens to be about almost exactly the size of the sun in the sky from our perspective, would get between the sun and the earth and cause an eclipse was not a well-understood concept by the people of the time. The 585 BCE eclipse was not the only eclipse to influence history either. In the same century as the Lido-Median War, a Chinese historian writing in the Bamboo Annals mentions a battle 1,500 years earlier where, quote, the sun rose at night, end quote, likely occurred on September 24th, 1912 BCE. Other eclipses kept by the ancient Chinese have helped determine the slowing spin of the Earth, adding about 0.07 seconds to our day every 3,800 years. The son of Charlemagne, the deeply religious Louis the Pious, was so distraught by the solar eclipse on May 5th, 840 CE, nearly 1300 years after the Battle of the Eclipse, that he stopped eating and died, which plunged Europe into war between his three sons, which forever after set the modern boundaries of Europe. On May 22, 1453, a Venetian helping defend Constantinople documented a lunar eclipse, which all but shattered the remaining hopes of the defenders of the city. The Greeks had a prophecy that Constantinople, the capital of the 1,000-year-old empire, according to the Venetian, would never fall until the full moon should give a sign, and the Venetian relays that the emperor was greatly afraid of it, and the Turks, who were sieging the city, quote, made great festivity in their camp for joy at the sign, end quote. Exactly one week later, Constantinople would succumb to the Turks. On February 29th, 1504 CE, when Europeans had a better understanding of eclipses with books detailing their occurrences, Columbus used the knowledge of an impending eclipse to his advantage. Columbus pretended to predict the lunar eclipse the following evening and told the native Jamaicans that it was an act of an angry god 
He used this knowledge to help him maintain power on the island while he was stuck there, leaving the Jamaicans as stunned at the event as much of the old world was time and time again. Like the Jamaicans, the Chilkat Indians of Alaska were also disturbed when astronomer George Davidson tried to quell their tense relationship with America by saying how he was interested in an eclipse on the following day, August 7, 1869. The Chilkat possibly on the verge of attacking the crew, were so unnerved by the eclipse that they left Davidson and his group alone. After all, the sun, the moon, the stars, what are they really? A sky invented by magic would make just as much sense to our ancestors but those mysterious objects were harmless and predictable enough most of the time. Outside of the weather, the night sky offered a peaceful glimmer of stars and a predictable moon cycle. The day that always followed each night offered even more predictability as the sun marched across the sky. The rising and setting of the sun is one of the few things a person from any time period could reliably count on. The sky is our source for order on a constantly spinning and changing earth. Then the day comes where the sky does something wholly unpredictable and the sun becomes suddenly shrouded in darkness, much to the horror of everyone. The Shakespearean tragedy where time is out of joint. To honor powers far greater than the most powerful kings of their age, the Battle of the Eclipse led to a marriage alliance for the appeasement of the gods by the Lydians and the Medes. Whatever forces were at work up there, Syaxares and Aliates knew that they didn't want to disturb them any further than they already had. Humans are not the only species to change their behavior because of an eclipse. Animals around the world have been reported to demonstrate bizarre behavior during a solar eclipse. Crickets and birds begin to chirp. Some animals, like honeybees and cows, will go back to the hive or barn. Giraffes will run about crazy, and some spiders are said to destroy their webs. But the smarter animals, chimpanzees, dolphins, and llamas, they all look up. As living organisms, we all collectively recognize when the void beyond our celestial terrarium changes and then it directly influences our thoughts and feelings in visceral and sometimes unpredictable ways. Cosmic events continue to stir something deep inside all life in its endless forms. What 
is this fantastic distant place that both lulls us and frightens us simultaneously. On the battlefield of Hallis, the men probably wondered why it was happening right then and there in the middle of their battle. Admonishment from powers far greater than any man. Only the subsequent marriage of peace between kingdoms seemed like a safe solution to this bad omen that broke the predictable order of the heavens above. But there was at least one man who saw it coming and would go on to change history forever after. And that man was Thales of Miletus. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.